Good morning. I'm going to begin again this morning by reading our text, this time in its entirety. It's 1 John 5, 13 through 21. Uh, please follow along with me if you're in your Bibles, if you have them. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we, what we asked of him. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he shall pray and God will give him life. I, I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. That's a verse that uh, definitely bears a good deal of comment. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we're children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we ask for help in understanding this passage, for without that help, we would not understand it at all. We come to a text like this to search it out, to analyze it, and you turn the tables on us. You search our hearts, you analyze us. You speak to the very core of our being, to soul and spirit. And so we, we would ask this morning that you would not allow the problems, the concerns of this text, to keep us from hearing what you have to say to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you may have seen uh, the notice in the Idaho Statesman this past week uh, of a crab boat, the big valley that sank uh, a few miles off the Pribilof Islands in the Bering Sea. Uh, there was a crew of six. Uh, all were lost except one seaman, a young 30-year-old man named Cash Seal. Uh, there was a follow-up article in the Seattle Times, which some of you may, may have seen, an interview with this uh, seaman who was rescued. And this is the way he describes his experience. Uh, he says, I was jolted awake when the boat begins to turn over and the lights went out. I have no idea what happened. I was asleep when it started to roll over on his starboard side. I was dang near standing up in my bunk when I woke up. Uh, the rest of his recollection, the article goes on to say, is a jumble, flashes of thrashing waves, choking in engine smoke, grabbing a life draft. His only instinct was to survive. He found himself in the sea, 20-foot uh, waves, 50-knot winds. He said, I was getting raked, knocked about. Everything was pretty frantic. And uh, he kept his grip on that life raft for the next six to eight hours until the Coast Guard was able to locate him and and pick him up. And as you may have read that same day, another sailor, another fisherman was swept off of another crabber, and he was never found. 
I had two reactions. One, my first reaction was a tingle of fear because, as you know, our youngest son is a, is a crabber. He's a crab fisherman, commercial fisherman. And he is, as we speak, out in the Bering Sea uh, fishing for snow crab. Uh, my recollection was at first that this might be the boat that he's fishing on this season because uh, two seasons ago this was the boat that he crewed on. But I called a few of his friends and discovered that he was on another boat, which, uh, of course, relieved us uh, greatly. My second reaction was uh, to take stock of my own reaction and to think this story is really a parable on life, as I considered about considered it. Uh, it raises the question, what do we do when our world turns upside down? When everything is topsy-turvy, how do we react? Uh, we think our marriage is going well, and we discover that our spouse has had a long-term affair. We think our job is secure, and, and we're replaced by a machine. We think our teenage daughter is getting along quite well, and she announces that she's pregnant. All those things happened to friends of mine this past year. So when your world turns turtle, what do you have to hang on to? That's the message of this passage that we're looking at this morning. John gives us four certainties, four great assurances. Assurances. Now, you'll notice as I read through the passage, because I emphasize the word, the key word in this text is knowing. It occurs seven times. Uh, it's actually a word that the philosopher Serenthus used. I mentioned Serenthus last year. He was the arch-heretic, the one who had set up a teaching center, a rival teaching center in, in Ephesus, and and was confusing many of the Christians, drawing them into his, uh, into his theology, his synthesis between Greek philosophy and Christian thought. And uh, this was his word, because he and his followers were in the know. They had this body of esoteric knowledge that nobody else had, and it was this knowledge that saves. Now, uh, John's letter is what amounts to what we would call today a cultural apologetic. He uses Serenthus words, he actually uses a lot of words, from, Greek, from the Greek classical philosophers, Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, because he's speaking to his culture. He uses their, their terminology, their way, of, their way of thinking. Uh, the word for knowledge here is the Greek word gnosis, which is the basis of our work Gnostic. And if you've read Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code, you know what Gnosticism is all about. It's actually a much later development than developed until the second or third century. It was a distortion, a perversion of, of Christianity, Dan Brown notwithstanding. And uh, it all started with Serenthus. Interesting, the impact that one individual can have on the world. This man confused people throughout his uh, tenure, and he continues to confuse us today. Serenthus had his gnosis, his higher knowledge, but, John says, so do we. There's some things we know as well, things that save us. Number one, we know, John says, no matter what happens to us, we're safe. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, I sought for years to try to gain a proper understanding of, of that word eternal life. One of those theological terms that we think we understand because we know the word. How do you define it? What does it mean? What, what, you know, what's, what's the personal, existential impact uh, on your life? Theologians say the eternal life is a continuum. You know, it's not life after death. It never had a beginning, never had an end. And that's a helpful concept. 
C.S. Lewis says that eternal life is entering into the life of God. And once you've been joined to God, how, how, can, how can you be united? Or how can you be divided? Uh, those are helpful ideas. But I'll tell you what turns my crank. It's just the idea that I'm going to live forever. Now, that's a very simple contact, a very simple concept. But that's what John is saying. No matter what happens, this is not all that is. Your world may turn totally upside down. Everything in your life may be jumbled. You may find yourself knocked about like, like semen seal on that life, life raft. But this isn't all that is. Because our life with God goes on forever. I'm going to live with him and I'm going to live with a whole bunch of you folks forever. And that brings an immense sense of security and confidence and joy to me. Our hearts hunger for that. The philosopher who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament said that God has set eternity in the heart of man. It's just part of us. From the very moment we're born, we long for eternal life. It's instinctual. We know that we're made for eternity. Uh, C.S. Lewis again comments that we're preoccupied with time, yet we're, we're always surprised by it. And we say, oh, my goodness, how time flies, or how you've grown, or where did that day go, or where did last year, you know, we're always, there's something about time that seems disjunctive. He says, we're like fish surprised by the wetness of water. He said, that would be strange indeed unless the fish was destined to become one day a land animal. And that's Lewis's point, we're destined, we're eternal creatures, we're destined for eternity. And that destiny is fixed, we're going to live forever. There was an announcement on the BBC this last week that they've been playing around with worms and cloning and hormoning them, and, and they turned up a worm that, that could live the equivalent of 500 years, the human equivalent of 500 years. Now, that's marvelous. They got all excited about that, but I'm going to live forever, not just 500 more years. That's what eternal life means. So even if your world turns upside down, you're safe. This isn't all there is. I've been teaching a series to my guys on Wednesday morning. We went through Psalm 90 last, last week, and we talked about that great poem where Moses talks about his impending death, and he says we need to count the days. We have 70 or, or 80 years if, if we happen to be strong, and then we fall asleep. He uses an interesting metaphor. He says we fall asleep. Then he says, satisfy me in the morning that I may be filled with joy all my days. See, that, that's the Old Testament equivalent of the resurrection. Waking up in the morning. We go to sleep when we die. And we wake up on that great getting up morning when our Lord brings us out of, out of the grave. And, and Moses said, that's what fills me with joy throughout my days. See, knowing that we're secure, that the next decision I make, the next tragedy I face, is, 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 not, is not going to destroy me, that my destiny is fixed, brings colossal joy. You know, as I was thinking about that, it occurred to me that we oldsters, you know, we, old time, we old geezers, have something to give to our, to our culture. One of the problems of getting old and timey is that we get, feel useless. If you're older, you have something to give to your culture. And I just was thinking about some of the things that we have to offer because we know our destiny is fixed. Strength and frailty, patient endurance in the midst of pain, love for others despite our discomfort, spiritual ascent in the face of physical decline, and faith and confidence in the, in the face of death. 
that we don't have to fear death. I don't particularly look forward to dying. I've never done it before. I don't know what, what to expect. But I don't fear death because I know I'm safe. My whole world can be turned upside down, but I'm safe. I know that. Now, the second thing that we know, if I can continue with this analogy, is that God hears our SOS. He hears us when we pray. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we, I'm reading verse 14, 15. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, that is, whatever we ask according to his will, we know that we have what we ask of him. Uh, you may think that I'm fixated on, on Lewis. Actually, I am, but he... <laughs> Lewis said, down through the ages when men and women have needed wisdom, they might cry out, William Shakespeare, help me, and nothing much happens. Or if they needed courage, they may cry out, Billy Budd, help me, and, and nothing much happens. But he says, for 1,900 years, whenever men and women in deep and desperate need have cried out, Lord Jesus, help me, something happens. He hears our prayers. He hears our SOS. Now, I have to confess, uh, prayer is a mystery to me. I used to have all the answers. I don't anymore. I don't understand it. I just do it. <laughs> uh, McDonald talks about uh, himself being an obstinate praying thing. Uh, that's me. From childhood, uh, I've, I've always prayed. It just comes instinctual. It's natural. It's what we do in a crisis. McDonald says again, the natural thing is straight to the Father's knee. When you get in trouble, what do you do? You, you pray. Even atheists pray because it's built into us. Uh, years ago, I read a poem about the proper man for a way... The, the proper way for a man to pray it goes like this. The proper way for a man to pray, said Deacon Lemuel Keyes, and the only proper attitude is down upon the knees. No, I should say the way to pray, said Reverend Dr. Wise, is standing straight with outstretched arms and wrapped in unturned, upturned eyes. Oh, no, 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 said Elder Slow. Such posture is too proud. A man should pray with eyes fast closed and head contritely bowed. It seems to me his hand should be austerely clasped in front with both thumbs pointing toward the ground, said Reverend Dr. Blunt. Last year I fell in Hitchkin's well, head first, said Cyrus Brown, with both my heels a-sticking up and my head a-pointing down. And I prayed a prayer right then and there, the best prayer I ever prayed, the prayerless prayer I ever prayed, I standing on my head. <laughs> so what happens when you're world? turns turtle, and you're standing on your head, you pray, you pray. And, and John says we can pray about anything. See, there, there are no special prayers, there are no special projects, we can pray, pray about anything. And he hears us. There's a real person out there on the other end of the line. We're not like Jedi Knights, you know, that are trying to key into some magical force some impersonal force. There's a real person that listens. You ever get tired of talking to computers? Honest to goodness. Carolyn was trying to get through to an insurance company this last week, and so she punches in the number, and this computer comes on, and it says, if you want to talk to a representative, say representative. Carolyn says, representative. If you want to talk to a representative, say representative. Carolyn says, 
representative. I didn't understand you. If you want to talk to a rep, <laughs> she was frothing at the mouth at about that moment. I had to rip the wires right out of the. I said, "Why don't you punch zero? Maybe you'll get somebody." You know. So we wanted to talk to a person. We don't want to talk to some impersonal force. He's a father. Just call him father and ask him for something. That's the point. We live in a world where people just don't listen. Friend was telling me, he went to one of these awful, uh, had to go to one of these awful company cocktail parties. There was all this racket and noise. Nobody's paying any attention. He's wandering around talking to people and he just got tired of it. Somebody came up to him and said, how you doing, John? And he, he said, well, my, uh, my uh, wife left me for my best friend and uh, I just got fired and I have terminal cancer. The guy says, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Uh, Carolyn told me the other day I don't listen to her very well. Something like that. <laughs> There's a wonderful expression in the Psalms. It's used repeatedly. He inclines his ear. Isn't that cool? He inclines. He leans way over like you would a little child. And he listens to us. And he answers requests that are according to his will. Now that tells me something about prayer. Prayer is not bringing God over to my side. Okay? Prayer is the means by which he aligns us with his will. He brings us over to his side. So what makes me think that I know how to run the world? You know, I pray that it won't rain on my wedding reception this afternoon and cause some kind of climatic chaos, you know, cause a flood on the west coast or something. I, mean, I, I, don't, I don't know how to run the world. I'm not God. See, prayer is not twisting God's arm and bringing him to my side. It's the way God slowly moves me over to his side so that I partner with him in, in what he's doing. Uh, some of you know Shel Silverstein's stuff. He writes for children, you know, children of all ages. I love it. He says, God says to me with a kind of smile, hey, how would you like to be God for a while and steer the world? Okay, says I, I'll give it a try. Where do I sit? How much do I get? What time is lunch? When can I quit? Give me back that wheel, says God. I don't think you're ready yet. And we're not. We're not. So that's why he says pray according uh, to his will. Now, the question is, how do we know his will? And that's the text that follows. See, what John, John's a very wise uh, teacher. He, he gives us a principle, and then he shows it how it works in practice. And that's what follows in the next paragraph, verses 16 and in 17, this is an example of prayer that, in, that is in God's will. Now, follow along. I don't have time to develop this, this text thoroughly, but I just I want, I want to give it a quick look. And bear in mind, this is an example of praying according to God's will. If anyone sees his brother, very important word. That's, that's the word for a Christian, as you know, a member of God's family. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he shall pray and God will give him life. What's he talking about there? Well, we see a brother or a sister who's struggling, who's having a hard time, who's just not making it, he's not doing well, stuck in some sin. What do you do? How can you help him or her? Well, you know, don't gossip about that person. Don't tell anybody else. And don't talk him into the ground. Pray for him. That's his point. When someone's having a hard time and you see them out there, and pray for Don't put them down. Don't withdraw from them. Pray for them. See? 
And, and, and in so doing, you partner with God in bringing life to that person. See, I, I, just this last week, I, I got an email from a man I really don't know, but he had picked up on something, something I had written, and he wrote back, and he, he was just despairing. He, just, he struggles with sin. He doesn't know what to do. How can I help him? Well, I stopped right where I was praying and, and prayed Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3 that he would be immersed in the love of God and know that, that God loves him in the midst of that struggle. And that's all I can do for him. But John's, John says that's a wise use of, of my time. Now, uh, some prayers, John goes on to tell us, are not God's will. There are some people we should not pray for. Uh, let me go on. I, I refer, when I say to, to pray, to those, notice he does not use the word brother here, to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. All wrong, wrongdoing is sin, and there is a sin that does not lead to death. So he's just clarifying. There's a sin that leads to death, and there is sin that does not lead to death. And it makes it quite clear you can pray for those that are sinning a sin that's not under death, but don't bother to pray for those who are sinning a sin that's under death. It's one of the most difficult texts, I think, in all of John's writings. And again, barrels of ink have been spilled over this particular text. It's not an easy text to understand, but I'll tell you what I, what I think he's talking about. You know, early on, the church wrestled with this passage, and they decided that there must be certain sins that are mortal sins. That is, they're sins that lead to death. They were murder, adultery, idolatry, and, and blasphemy. And these were the, if someone was guilty of those sins, we weren't, weren't to pray for them. And so they divided sin into two categories. There's mortal sin, sin that leads to death, and there's venial sin. Uh, by the way, that's not the word venal. Venal means uh, subject to, to uh, corruption or being bought out. Venial it comes from a Latin word, venia, that means forgiven. So there are mortal sins that cannot be forgiven, and there are venial sins that can be forgiven. Now, many of you are familiar with those two terms question is, what is a mortal sin? What is a venial sin? Well, John knew there's really only one mortal sin. You know what it is? It's the sin of not believing in Jesus. See, it's not adultery. It's not murder. It's not divorce. It's not suicide. It's the sin of not believing in Jesus. Jesus said, and John overheard him to the Pharisees, if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That's the only mortal sin. Now, what is John saying? Well, it if you see someone who refuses to believe in Jesus, there's no use praying that that person will have life because there's no other way to have life except in Jesus. Do you understand? We can't say, God, give him a break. <laughs> Let him in anyway. But every other sin we can pray for and we can partner with God in bringing life to that person. So when the world turns upside down, number one, you're safe. Number two, you can issue an SOS. And number three, you're not going to fall out of the boat. <laughs> you're not going to get swept overboard. We know that anyone born of God does not continue in sin. Use the present tense verb. The idea is he doesn't go on and on and on in sin and, and have it envelop him and destroy him. The one who is born of God keeps him safe. Do you know who that is? That's Jesus. We know that everyone, anyone born of God does not go on sinning. The one who was born of God keeps him safe, keeps him from falling out of the boat, keeps him from losing 
his salvation. The evil one cannot harm him. We know that, that, that we are the children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil, evil one. So what he's saying is that Satan is creating the perfect storm. Everywhere you turn, you see people doing terrible things to themselves and to one another, and it's easy to get caught up in it. You would think that we might become victims of the evil one as well, but we're not under Satan's control. We are children of God. We're under his control. Who will keep me safe? My big brother, Jesus. I always wanted a big brother. What I got was a big sister, and she's tough as nails, but I wanted someone that, you know, that could beat up on the kids that beat up on me. I never had a big brother until I realized that Jesus is my big brother. He's my hero. Now, the reason that's so meaningful, as John goes on to say, is that my big brother is God Almighty. Now, follow his argument. Next few verses. We know also that the Son of God has come, has come. That's a historical event. See, we, we, the Apostles' Creed says that, that our Lord was crucified under Pontius Pilate. They consciously put that in there to point out the fact that this is a historical event. If it happened today, they would write the creed to say Jesus was crucified under the tenure of George W. Bush to tie it down in history. It's not a myth. It happened. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. The Son of God has come and has given us understanding. So that's, another, that's another word from Greek philosophy. It's Plato's word. It means to think rationally instead of emotionally. See, Plato knew that, that it, it was emotional thinking that, that, that got us in trouble. They do some hard thinking with our minds. That's his word for logic and think and thought, hard thought. It's a Gnostic word, too, that Serenthus was using. He's given us the ability to think so that we may know him who is true. Another Gnostic term. There are two words for truth in, in the New Testament. One means true in contrast to false. This is the word that means real in contrast to illusory. We may know him who is true, that is real, and we are in him who is true, that is God. Even in his son, Jesus Christ, listen to this, he, who, who's the referent? Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. This is the most explicit statement of the deity of Christ that I've been able to, to uh, define in the New Testament. Because grammatically, the nearest referent is God himself, or pardon me, is the son, Jesus Christ. He he says, literally, this one, because John is underscoring the fact that Jesus is God. This one who came in the flesh is Jesus Christ. You see what he's saying? Jesus is the real thing, except no substitutes. See? He's the real God. Now, most of us have very indistinct con uh, concepts, distorted concepts of God. You want to know the real God? Just look at Jesus. Just watch him at work. Listen to his word. Read the Gospels. Read the Gospels. See how he treated women. He never thought there was anything inherently funny or weird about, about women. He treated them as his equal. He loved them. See how he treated bad women. <laughs> the woman at the well. He says, I know where you're coming from. You're just thirsting for love. What a tender touch. Everybody else shrank from her, but not, not Jesus. And look at the way he treated children. Little dirty, smelly, 
street urchins in Jerusalem, pick him up, put him on his lap, hugged him, loved him. It's always a mark of a man with a tender heart, cares for children. That's God. That's God in the flesh. And he ends with this wonderful note of affection. Little children, keep yourself from idols. See, you understand what he's saying? This, this is, Jesus is a real thing. He's the real God. Except no substitutes. Keep yourself from idols. Now, what does he mean? Well, he could be talking about real idols because Ephesus was full of them. Paul was writing, or John was writing to a church in Ephesus, and you know the Temple of Diana was there, and Demetrius, the silversmith we know from Acts, was cranking out uh, little figurines of Diana, little amulets and things to put in your pockets, scarabs and amulets and whatnot. But I don't think so. I think again he's going back to Plato's use of this word idols. Plato said, we don't listen to reason. And interesting, this is a direct quote from one of his works, uh, Timaeus. He says, we don't listen to reason. And he uses that word that John uses, understanding. We don't listen to reason because we're under the power of idols and fantasies, he says. See, again, he's contrasting the real with the illusory. Jesus is the real thing. Don't abandon the real for smoke, smoke and mirrors. That's what he's saying. Yeah, you know, next time you check out the grocery store, check out the magazines along the side. That's what our world tells us is real. Money, power, great sex, beauty. This is the world that John says is in the lap of the evil one. It's a grand illusion. If we believe that, we're being deceived. We're falling into lies. See, what, what the Word tells us is that you can be single and celibate. You can do it. You can live without a spouse. You can live without children. You can live without a makeover. So you, you, you don't have to be tall and thin. You, you can be short and fluffy. That's okay. That's okay. The world tells you you can't. You can't live without power, sex, this kind of house, this kind of car, these clothes, it's all illusory. John says, don't buy into it. Jesus is the real thing. He's the true God, the only God worth having. No sickness, McDonald says, can come near to blast my health. My life depends not upon any meat. My bread comes not from any human tilling. No wings will grow upon my changeless wealth. and We won't fly away. Wrong cannot touch it, violence or deceit. Thou art my life, my health, my bank, my barn, and from all other gods thou dost plainly warn. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Let's pray. We are safe in your care. You hear us when we pray. You are a strong brother who cares. And our Lord Jesus, the one who's in the boat with us, is the eternal God. We're safe. Our hearts can only respond in thanksgiving and praise and joy. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.